passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll read verses 1 through 22. If you want to use the Bible there in your seats, that's page 246. If you don't remember or weren't here last week, David narrowly escaped Saul and his pursuing army uh, by God's uh, providence. But again, Saul continues to seek the life of David. He's tried to pin him with a spear. He sought, sent armies after him. And now afresh, he is pursuing him. Let us attend to the work of the Lord among his people in his word so that his word may continue to work among us today. Let's read together. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to them, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we come to your word, to the actions of your people, to your providential work, to the record that you have preserved by your spirit so that you might speak to us today. In these moments, Lord, would you, by your word and spirit, work in and among us for your glory. Lord, would I be a faithful servant for that purpose? Would all that I have prepared to say and end up saying be of good use for your people to your glory and all that falls short, would it quickly be forgotten? Be with us, we pray, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have you ever stabbed someone in the back? I don't mean with a sword or a pickaxe, but a dagger. A thin blade that slides easily in and out, so easily that you barely register what you've done. I know I have. Yeah, but you. Well, you always. Don't you remember when you did that? If Jesus says it is murder to call a brother raka or fool, then certainly what I have described is a revenge killing. The waiting for an opportunity when I have been hurt, when we have been hurt, to hurt someone else. To murder them with our words, to take vengeance and revenge, to try to extricate out of a situation a sense of justice and justification by repaying evil for evil. If I can do that, if you can do that, then I think that we can imagine ourselves in the place where David was in this passage. The man who is at one of his most vulnerable moments, King Saul, is his proclaimed enemy. He's robbed him of his opportunity to be with his wife and at his home. He has on more than one occasion personally tried to kill him with a spear. He has destroyed a whole village because Saul has assumed that the village was in support of David by feeding him and sending him on his way with a sword. He has sent men after him and now has gathered 3,000 men to David's 600 men for the point of pursuing him, finding him, and destroying him. If the words of another person can cause me to want to harm them in response with my words, how much more so if our lives have been pursued, if our lives have been destroyed, if it has cost the lives of others. It may be easy to think, of course David didn't stab Saul in the back. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know how hard that must have been because of how often we have not withheld our own hand. If this is how we respond to conflict, insult, and verbal injury, 
then how might we be tempted to respond to more overt forms of injustice when they come in our own lives, when we do find ourselves in situations like David, when we are tempted to spiral in, punch, counterpunch? David's restraint here, brothers and sisters, is frankly astounding. Saul has tried to kill him, and yet David withholds his hand. How is that possible? Is that possible for you and for me? Not only not to return violence for violence with our actions, but even with our words that Jesus counts as equal to the actions of our hands. As we look at the passage, we see that that while Saul has assumed David is his enemy, David seems to have a different perspective on the situation. And as he comes to realize what is happening before him, as he sees himself more clearly, he is able to restrain his hand. And I think what we see will be necessary for us to respond more like David, who responds like our Savior upon the cross then what we will need, first and foremost, is a right view of God. We will need a right view of those that hurt us. We will need a right view of ourselves, and we will need a right view of mercy. If we are to restrain our hands from vengeance and revenge, from taking justice into our own hands, then the first thing we need is a right view of God. To understand that God is the ultimate judge of what is right, not us, or not what the situation presents to us. As David sees Saul before him, he strikes out and cuts off a corner of the robe. And then what does it say about how David responds to this? After he cuts it off, he says, then his heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Numbers 15, 38, 39 instructs God's people that they should have four corners to their robe in honoring of God that this is what they should wear. And in Exodus twenty two twenty eight, it says that no man should curse a ruler of the people. And so even as David has mainly meant to take a memento of how close he is to prove that he could kill Saul, he has inadvertently insulted Saul. He has put Saul out of the possibility of being in obedience to God until he can rectify the situation. And so if he could do that, how much worse would it be if he actually follows through to stab him and put him to death? And so he looks to the Lord and he says to his men who want him to follow through, forbid it, Lord. Because his sense of what justice looks like in that moment is not what his hand will permit him to do, is not what the people around him say it's okay to do, it's what God says is okay to do. If God is the one who is ultimately the judge, we need to see that he is also in control. We see Saul's presence as indicative of God's control. Yet David does not use that to justify vengeance, but to trust God's control to bring justice. 
David on multiple times in this passage says, you have been delivered into my hand. The men say, look, God has delivered him into your hand. David tells Saul, you have been delivered into my hand. And that understanding that God's in control is not used to justify, well, God put you here, therefore it will justify my vengeance. If God is so in control that he can put you under my power, and God is in control that not only is he the determiner of what's right, but he is able to bring about justice according to his control and his power. This is David's hope. Verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David's understanding that God is a just God and God is a powerful God is that God is not only the judge, not only able to judge, but will bring about justice. If we think that God is not in control, if we think we are the arbiters of what is right, if we think that God is disinterested from judge justice, then we will be tempted to say, I must be the one to enact justice. That God doesn't care, and so only I care. That God is disengaged, and therefore he won't Our restraint is not a giving up on justice. Our mercy, our compassion to those that hurt us is not giving up on justice, but it's a trust in the authority, power, interest, and action of a superior judge in God. David was not giving up on justice. He was not saying, what you did to me doesn't matter. But he's trusting God to bring it about. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. David is not denying justice. David is not giving up on justice, but he's trusting God to be the one to bring it about. While we are to trust God's judgment of what is right and wrong and his ability to bring ultimate justice, we must consider how to demonstrate this to others. While David does not list all of Saul's sins and crimes, his cry for justice is a remark on the injustice and sin done by Saul. And as Christians are called to be ambassadors of mercy, to be those who forgive not only those that we already love, but to forgive those that are considered our enemies, we need to consider that sometimes our displays of mercy and compassion might be perceived as disinterest or inaction about justice. David is not merciful because he abandons justice, but because he wants real justice. And if Christians are to be a light of the world and ambassadors of the living God, we must likewise demonstrate a care for justice, not according to the world's standards, but according to God's to confront the reality that there is injustice, that what Saul is doing is wrong before God. We need to confront the devaluation of the unborn and the elderly, the mistreatment of neighbors because they speak different languages or have a different skin color, to care about corrupt governance, about the ignoring of the widow and the orphan, about abuse against women, because when we don't show that these things matter, what we risk communicating is that we have a disinterested, unjust God. 
There's a difference between communicating this is unjust, this is wrong, this is sinful, and our assumption that we can fix those things. We can be merciful and compassionate and patient as we confront these injustices because we trust, as David does, is in a God who is superior in his justice, who is interested in acting on behalf of those who suffer injustice and who has power and a willingness to bring that justice about. It is not a lack of God's justice that permits us to restrain our hands and our tongues in mercy, but because of God's superior judgment and power. And because those that we are contending with belong to him. We not only need a right view of God, we need a right view of others. Humanly speaking, who is Saul to David? On one hand, he's his father-in-law. He's the king, but he is also a real and present threat an enemy. And now he's in front of him. He is exposed. He is alone. He could choose to see Saul as his enemy put in his control. But since David is already looking to God, he realizes that who Saul is is not merely defined by how David sees Saul, but how God sees Saul. Saul is defined also by his relationship to God. He is the anointed one, the God, one that God appointed to be king for the time that God has appointed Saul to be king of Israel. If God has delivered Saul into David's hand, that can only happen if Saul is first in God's hand before he's ever in David's hand. That God is under his providential control. He repeats that Saul is the Lord's anointed. He was appointed to be king, and it is not up to David in his own authority to deal with him, but only according to what God has said, and God has denied personal vengeance. The people that hurt us, the people that we would put in the category of enemy, they belong to God. Maybe not as those anointed to be king or those that have been selected to be our governors or our presidents or our senators. They might just be appointed to be our neighbor. They might just be appointed to be our co-worker, our cousin. But whoever they are, they belong to God. It is so easy to define others by their relationship to us as employee, as spouse, as friend. But prior to any of those relationships, they belong to God. This is why our hands are supposed to be restrained from vengeance. Genesis 9, 5 through 6, as God speaks to Noah after the flood, as God has wiped the earth clean of the sinfulness of man for a time when the world had been defined by violence, in a celebration of violence, as God speaks to Noah, he says this, From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by a man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Not only do other human beings belong to God, but they were made by God for the purpose of God to image God. Competition and pain and anger can narrow our view of others to that of bully, to that of cheater, to that of tyrant. 
And those things might be true. But that is never the whole picture. They are never not a creation of the living God. They are never not one meant to bear his image. Even if they are a horrendously marred and distorted image, it has not changed that God has made them as his image bearers. And when our hurt and our fear and our pain makes us want to try to take control of the other person, we need to remember that they are already in the hands of God. They already belong to him. They are already under his power. They are already purposed to image his glory. We need to view others if we are to show mercy and withhold from vengeance by seeing others as they relate to God. But not just them, but us. We need a right view of God, we need a right view of others, and we need a right view of self. When we understand who God is and who we are, it can help us view ourselves aright. A confrontation with God as the ultimate judge calls into question our own impartiality. We so love to be justified. We so love to be in the right. In fact, that's so often what we use to excuse our pain of others. Your accusation, your critique of me, your challenge of me, it has no bearing because look how sinful you are. Look how stained you are. In the world of righteousness, I am so much above you that I am justified not only in pointing out what's wrong about you, but doing it to hurt you so that you know I am better. But a confrontation with the God who rules over all of creation as the one who says what is right and good must cause us to see that we are not impartial, that we are not set up to judge others in our own ability. That one of the reasons we are called to restrain our hands from vengeance is because we ourselves are not without sin. Look at me, look with me at verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off Saul's robe. His heart struck him because he realized the sin that was motivating that action. The potential sin of, of dishonoring Saul, the potential sin of murdering him, but also the sinful desire for vengeance, the sinful desire that he was going towards in that moment. Even if he had not overtly sinned, he saw in that moment the capacity of his heart, of his heart to sin in taking vengeance. We need to know that we are sinners ourselves. That we are those who deserve the, the wrath of God. That we are those who deserve the correction of justice if we are to rightly respond to the injustice of others towards us. But also, we are loved. We may be sinners, but we are loved. As David goes out and confronts Saul with what he has done, as he holds up the corner of the robe, he entrusts the judgment between Saul and David to God. He says, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
David assumes that God cares. That God cares for him. That the words of Samuel anointing him and appointing him as the future king. The words of Jonathan to him that God was with him. Even the distorted understanding of those men in the cave with him that God was with him were reminders of the truth that he was beloved by God. And so while the actions of Saul might say, you are not loved, by the reality of trying to live off the land, not being at home, having to scavenge, having to be on the defensive all of the time might say, you are not loved. And the only way to say, I will be loved is if I am justified, can be restrained is to see the surpassing love of God that will vindicate those whom he has called his own. If God loves you, Will he not take up your cause to vindicate you, his people? David sees that not only is he capable of sin, not only is he loved by God, and that in turn humbles him. What does David do when he comes out of the cave? He prostrates himself before the king. It exposes him not only militarily that Saul might come back and strike him or call out to his men in the hopes that they might fight off David and his men. But it exposes himself as in a position lower than the king. He is willing to look less than to be exposed because his understanding of who he is before God allows him to think of himself less. And so he says to Saul, who have you come out against? A dead dog? A flea? Oh, those are stylized words. David isn't saying, I am a dog, I'm a flea, I don't matter. But he's saying, compared to you, the king, I'm not worth your attention. I'm not worth your anger. I'm not worth all of this. David is willing to look lower, to look less than in the eyes of Saul. When we know that God is judge, when we know that we are prone to sin and error, and that God loves his creation enough to enact judgment, we can act in the humility necessary to be merciful and to restrain our hands. Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants, says Deuteronomy 32, 35-36. You hear all of those pieces together. Vengeance is mine. Why? Because God is just. For the time comes when their foot shall slip. The, the strength, the power of others, it will fail. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion. He will act on behalf of his servants. It is not self-hatred. It is not because we don't deserve vindication, but because we know that the just and living God will vindicate his servants and he will do it better for us than we could do for ourselves that we entrust judgment to him and act instead in mercy. Lastly, we need a right view of what mercy is. We have to have a correct view of mercy. Romans 13, 8 says this, Owe no one anything except love, except for to love each other. For the love one, 
excuse me, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We've already noted that David considers God's law to be the ultimate judge, and that's what helps him restrain his hand. But for many of us, at times we think that justice is only accomplished through the repayment for someone's sin. We think that if we're loving, if we're compassionate, if we're merciful, we can't be just. We can't be righteous. And yet God says that the fulfillment of righteousness, that the fulfillment of the law is love. And then if David was to act in vengeance, even as king without love, that he would not have accomplished justice. Mercy and love and compassion and justice are inextricably tied together. We cannot pit them against each other. We need to remember that mercy is not unjust. The other thing we need to correct is that we tend to view mercy as weak. But what we see in this power is its transformative power. How does Saul respond to David's act of mercy? Does he lash out to attack him? Does he call his troops? No, he comes to terms with the truth. Partly, David's act may have reminded him of what Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15 when, when Saul who was upset to hear that God was judging him for his actions, grabbed onto Samuel's robe and tore off the corner of it. And what did Samuel say? So shall the kingdom be torn from your own hand by your neighbor. Saul didn't want to believe it. Saul was unwilling to accept it. But now in the compassion of David, he is able to see his own evil ways to acknowledge that David has been righteous, that he has acted evilly against Saul. We often think of God's prophets warning of the repercussions of sin as what is necessary for us to bring people to repentance. But also, the announcement of that coming Justice is an opportunity for people to repent because what the prophets were often announcing is you may still repent. God wants you to repent more so than he wants you to suffer for your sins. And in Romans 2 verse 4, it says God's kindness is there to produce repentance. It is not David's military skill to defeat the Philistines and defeat others and continue to get outside of Saul's hand that causes him to repent. It's not his own son Saul saying, David is in the right, what are you doing, Father? That helps Saul to see his sin. It's not David holding a knife to his throat that causes Saul to see his sin. It is the mercy that has the power by which God works to show Saul his sin. James 2.3 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Romans 12.19-21 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. The idea of the burning coals is not the infliction of wounds, but of the prickling heat that brings them to a recognition of their sin. 
It is the right type of shame that as you show them love, they can't help but see their own actions towards you. The purpose is not to hurt them, but bring them to repentance through your good works. And then it goes on to say, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think we often don't overcome evil with good, that we don't often respond in mercy because we think vengeance is stronger. We think evil is able to bring about what we want. But it's mercy that brings Saul to repentance. It is God's manner of bringing us to repentance through the display of his compassion and mercy. Mercy is not weak. It is powerful to transform. But if there are some of us who struggle with thinking, well, mercy and compassion is weak. It's not strong enough to change things. There are some among us who say that if we are just kind, if we are just patient, if we are just forgiving, that is all that is necessary. And I want to draw your attention to what happens at the end of this passage. What does David do? He goes back to the stronghold. David doesn't leave and go home to Michael. He knows the heart of Saul, and he knows that while this has been transformative for the moment, this does not necessarily mean that this is ultimately transformative for Saul. If we were all just a bit kinder, if we were all just a bit more loving, if we were all just a bit more merciful and forgiving, the world would be a better place. It might be better, but it will not be fixed. It will not be whole. Because the mercy of man cannot save others. It can only picture God's mercy. It is only God that can change hearts. Titus 3, 4 through 5 says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is why our hope for ourselves and the hope for others is not even ultimately in our mercy, but in God's mercy towards us and in God's mercy towards them. Loving compassion may change outward behavior. It may break cycles of revenge, but the hope for this world is changed hearts, which can only be changed by the mercy of God. And so while we can restrain our hands and we can restrain our tongues in mercy, we can and are called to offer forgiveness. Perhaps the most powerful sign of mercy is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To pray for them is to put them in the hands of God with the hope that God will act to change their hearts. Because we are not only saying we want you to stop, we don't want to harm you, but we want you to be like us, who have become recipients of the mercy of God because we ourselves were sinners who are not living according to the image of God, that we ourselves deserve wrath and vengeance and justice, but God has shown mercy to us. David could have enacted vengeance because he was this close to Saul. 
and is often those that are closest to us that have the most potential to hurt us, to damage us, to sin against us. And because of our proximity to them, like David to Saul in the cave, we are then best positioned to strike back in anger and hurt and violence to bring about a sense of justification. But brothers and sisters, when we are closest to others, when we spend time with the hurting, when we visit those in jail, when we acknowledge the addicted around us, then we are also close enough to see that they, like us, were made by God. To see in their sin the sins that are at work in our own lives and to see that the hope for them is not the justice and the hurt that we might inflict. It's not even ultimately in the mercy that we will offer, but it is in the power of God to change that person just as we hope and put our trust in the fact that God changes us by his mercy. Brothers and sisters, let us be close to others. Let us draw near to them, even when they are most exposed and most vulnerable, not so that we can strike, but so that we can show them the mercy of Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we are tempted in our words, in our voting, in our actions, in the way that we spend our money, in the things that we whisper to ourselves at night to take vengeance. But Lord, if... David, a sinner like us, could withhold his hand. And if Jesus, the only perfect man that ever walked this earth, could say, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do as he hung from the cross, then as recipients of that forgiveness and mercy, we pray that you can work in us the ability to withhold our hands, to restrain our tongues, to offer mercy instead of vengeance, because we trust in you, the merciful and just God, who has worked in us. All these things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.